0: Thank you for that choir, that was lovely. In the annals of Christian scripture, there are few characters who are as devious as Isaac's brother-in-law, Laban. Y'all remember Laban, right? Rebecca's brother, the one that she sent Jacob to after he hoodwinked his father Isaac and swindled his brother Esau's birthright right out from under him. Rebecca knew that Jacob had to skip town before Esau could get his hands on him, so she told him, boy, go see your uncle Laban. He will take you in. And boy, howdy, did he. Laban got seven years of hard labor from Jacob for the hand of his youngest daughter, Rachel, in marriage. But, uh uh-oh, come sunrise the morning after the nuptials, Jacob woke up married to her older sister, Leah, instead. Kids, ask your parents about it when you get home. Incidentally, Jacob asked his new uncle-father-in-law what the deal was with all this, only to find out that it was a simple misunderstanding. You see, older, younger sisters could never be married until their older sisters are married first. So all Jacob would need to do is work another seven years in order to marry Rachel as well. As one of my seminary professors once said after teaching a class on this section of Scripture, raise your hand if you are here in this room with us and you would be willing to buy a used car off of Uncle Laban. I say that there are few characters in Scripture as devious as Laban, but one person who could give him a run for his money was Jacob himself. And he did. After working 14 years and building up a family, Jacob told his uncle-in-law that he wanted to strike out on his own, but first he made sure that he took the lion's share of Laban's flocks with him when he did. As this morning's text tells us towards the end, Jacob made sure that the feebler animals were Laban's and the strongers were his own so that he grew exceedingly rich and had large flocks and everything else that came with them. While the passage that Dawn read for us just a moment ago might not reflect our best modern methods of agricultural science or line up with the deepest insights of animal husbandry, apologies to all the Clemson graduates among us, make no mistake about it. When Jacob, who had to flee Uncle Laban's house in order to get away from Esau, realizes that it is time for him to now flee from Laban as well, he absolutely fleeced him. Now, what in the world are you and I supposed to do with that? You and I, all of us, Jacob, we are supposed to be the good people. The people of God. Law-abiding citizens, folks who do the right thing the first time, every time. The ones who follow the golden rule, the Ten Commandments, the people in this culture who have ethics. Right? If y'all were raised like I was, you know the old phrase, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't date the girls who do. I grew up in the low country of South Carolina, so I actually have hard-earned knowledge into the wisdom of not dating the girls who chew, and yet I also know that there is something deep inside of us that is drawn to pull for the folks around us who, let's say, Color outside of the lines, the ones who bend the rules just a little bit. Han Solo, Ferris Puehler, Zach Morris, Calvin and Hobbes, Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Duke Boys who, as we all know, were just a couple of small business owners trying to negotiate an oppressive regulatory system. Anyway, we see this in the world and something inside of us is drawn to it. But what do we do? And this gets back to my question from a moment ago. What do we do when we see it in Scripture? Scripture. When we see that same kind of double dealing so clearly displayed, not just in the lives of Uncle Laban and folks like him, but in the lives of the patriarch Jacob and folks like him as well. Jacob, who swindled his father, swindled his brother, swindled his uncle and his father-in-law. Although, to be fair, those last two ended up being the same person. What do we do when we see that same kind of deviousness not just here in Genesis chapter 30 but in the life of Abraham or Joseph or Ruth or David? What do we do when it's not just individuals in Scripture who advance their own good fortunes by being devious but it is in fact the very kingdom itself that gets advanced? the blessing, the covenant. For that matter, what do we do with this morning's Luke text? The parable of the so-called unjust steward. I can tell you what we typically do. We typically ignore it. On a lark this week, I decided to go back into the archives of Duke University Chapel to see if there were any sermons on this text. The, the chapel archives go all the way back to the 1950s. They're there online, almost as many sermons there in that archive as have been preached here in this place. For decades, the finest preachers in the world, the most educated, most sophisticated men and women who have put their hands to the Lord's plow have been invited into that pulpit Sunday after Sunday to expound on God's word. And from what I can tell, not a one of them has preached a text on this parable. Perhaps the question should be, Why would they? As the great Fred Craddock points out in his commentary on this passage, most Christians actually find this parable offensive. They either find it offensive because Jesus has the nerve to describe the actions of this man as shrewd or clever, or they find it offensive because he then has the nerve to go on and tell his disciples to follow and emulate this man's example. So, if you're here today and you are one of those Christians, let me go ahead and go on the record now. Stealing. As a rule, I'm against it. Write it down and keep it in mind as I continue to go, because as it turns out, it is unfortunate, but we are not here to talk about what I think. We are instead here to talk about what Jesus thinks. And Jesus seems to think that there is some deep, deep wisdom at the heart of this story. A rich man has a servant whom he calls in for a review, and the servant realizes that his time is running out, decides to, let's just say, be generous with some of his neighbors. He frees them from some of their debts, lightens their burdens. Go, he says to one of them, rewrite your bill. You no longer owe a hundred. Now you only owe fifty. And then when that man's master, when he catches wind of this shrewd bit of double dealing, when he hears about all this unmerited grace that his servant has been spreading around, On the side, instead of getting angry, this master actually commends him, and it's at this point Luke tells us that Jesus looks at his disciples and effectively tells them to go forth and do the same, so that they make make, so that they might make friends for themselves. And so that those friends might then welcome them, as Jesus says, into the eternal homes. Perhaps this text is not actually a story about deception after all. Perhaps, and stay with me for a moment, perhaps it is actually a story about priorities. The world around us will tell us in ways large and small that the chief end of life is to be a good citizen. A hard worker, a team player, an effective, efficient cog in the machinery of this world, paying our dues, keeping our heads down and our noses to the grindstone, scrupulously moving everything forward one eight-hour workday after another. And to be sure, there is good sense in that advice. There's very good sense in it. In fact, the argument could be made that there is the greatest sense in it. Unless, as Tom Long once pointed out in a sermon of his on this story, unless that the world, unless that, the world that we see around us with its glittering kingdoms and its insatiable greed is actually passing away. Unless, like the servant in the story, our time here is actually running short and then behind this world, beyond this world, there is another world, another kingdom that is ready to be born. One that is perhaps already being born around us today. A world defined not by class or job title, or work ethic but instead by friendships a world defined not not by what you owe or what you earn but by what you need by grace wonderful lavish unmerited grace a world that is actually an eternal home in a world where we will all each of us welcome our friends and neighbors with open arms when we get there. And if that's the case, if that's actually the real world, then that's probably where our priorities ought to lie. That's what should guide how we live our lives and how we use our resources, our time and talents and energy, and yes, our money because if that's the case then that deep truth should be what should be our guiding principle moving forward and if our guiding principle turns out to be that kingdom instead of this one then we perhaps should not be surprised when our priorities and our means of achieving them do not perfectly align with those of our neighbors And if the world around us is surprised or even shocked by what that looks like, if rules get bent or lines get crossed, if they find it devious or unfair or unwise, if they cannot see the sense in it, if they come to doubt its dove-like innocence because they are caught off guard by a sudden moment of serpentine wisdom, then, well... So be it, because you and I will have our eyes fixed upon another prize. Jesus looks at his disciples and he tells them, You know, I wish the children of light were as shrewd at investments in the coming world as the wheelers and the dealers of this world are at investing in it. Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of this dying age, he says. So that when it passes, you will have invested in that which truly endures. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.